darkness came and took its toll And in the name of flood control They made their plans and they drained the land Now the glades are going dry And the last time I walked in the swamp I sat up on a cypress stump I listened close and I heard the ghost Of Osceola cry room in Seminole Sports. This is Tomahawk Talk. I'm your host, Brett Rutherford, and we are live on 89.7 FM WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. We've got a great show for you tonight as I am joined by my good friend and co-host, Gary Putnick. Gary, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Yeah. Happy to have you in the studio and in, in the driver's seat yeah, tonight. Big boy chair, as Scott Clemens said on, on Twitter. Uh, our producer, Sebastian Angel Riano, Pulling double duty tonight for the station. He joins our panel tonight. Sebastian, a lot of good stuff to talk about. I hope you're as excited as I am. Good evening, and I am definitely excited to get going. And rounding out our panel is Luke Hazen, V89's resident Gator fan. Luke, glad to have you on the show. For my first show as host, you're a, you're a great friend, and uh, I hope, I hope again, you're, you're just as excited to get going. We've got a national championship game tonight. Oh, yeah, this feels really familiar to our days on uh, Raise Your Voice with you hosting that. Oh, yes. And I'm, I'm really sure. looking forward. No Gators tonight. LSU-Clemson, big matchup. But I'm kind of disappointed. I walked in here thinking that we were going to record our Oscar nominations podcast, but I, I guess we can talk sports for an hour. If they let us, we'll have to do a bonus episode where we can break down all the Oscar nominations because I don't think our listeners tuned in for that. I think they tuned in to listen to tonight's or uh, to hear, hear us break down tonight's national championship game, which kicks off in a little less than an hour. And we're definitely going to talk a lot about that in the second half of the hour. But pretty big breaking news today um, coming from Jeff Passan of ESPN. We've, we had heard that Major League Baseball was investigating the Houston Astros in a sign-stealing scandal dating back to 2017 when they beat the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers in the World Series. Today, Major League Baseball handed down the suspensions. Uh, GM Jeff Lunau and manager A.J. Hinch both suspended for a year. The Houston Astros lose their 2020 and 2021 first-round draft picks, and they were fined $5 million, which some people thought was light, but that is the max fine allowed by the Major League Baseball Constitution. Um, Carlos Beltran also implicated but won't be punished since he was a player, and he is now the manager of the New York Mets. And it's also being reported that Alex Cora, who was a part of the, uh, that Astros coaching staff and is now the manager of the Boston Red Sox, will be punished. We do not know the severity of that punishment, but I've seen that he's probably going to get this, at least the same amount as Hinch and Lunau, but but very good chance that it's more. So a lot of stuff to break down here, kind of setting a, a precedent for moving forward in baseball in terms of cheating and, and how Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball want to deal with these sorts of things. Gary, I just want to get like your your first thoughts when you first heard this news. What what was going through your head when Passon sent out that tweet? I was I was I would think I think that the one year was kind of was fair. And then I was like, okay, this is all normal. Nothing new really here. And then when it came out that both of them were fired shortly after, that's when it hit a bit. It was like, okay, wow. I thought a year, like firing them just for a year suspension, I'd be like, that's a bit much, I'd say. Well, a similar situation, we, we saw it with the New Orleans Saints, where a head coach was suspended mm-hmm. for one year, Sean Payton, with the whole Bounty Gate situation. And they kept him on, and he's come back to have a lot of success in New Orleans. 
the Astros and their owner and their front office decided to go a different route. And I respect the decision. I think it's important, if you, especially if you want to eliminate that culture, to kind of clean house. And I, I, this, I, I, I respected his decision. Yeah, and this is decision. this is Manfred's, like, you know, but Selig had to fight the whole steroid era. This is now Selig having to try and fight technology and the cheating of the way that teams are going to use it to cheat and get around other teams. Yeah, uh, Luke? Yeah, you know, I was scrolling on Twitter today, guys, and I, I got a notification saying that Jeff Passan had tweeted something. I always turn it on because there have been arbitration hearings going on, and I, I follow that extensively. Yeah. And when I say that my jaw dropped when the news broke that they had actually come out with the with a ruling, a decision on the Astros cheating scandal, I mean, it was to the floor. I Back when we reported on this and we talked about this on the show when it, the news first broke that there was some sort of scandal, we thought that, you know, Manfred had to come down hard on these guys if he wanted to set a precedent. But to finally see that come through, to finally see that come to light with this one-year suspension of A.J. Hinch and Lunau, um, it was huge. I, I was not expecting that whatsoever to come this early. So, so you were shocked, but did you did, did you agree with the punishments that were levied out? I, I do. I, I agree with the, the stripping of the 2020 and 2021 picks. I agree with the, uh, the $5 million fine. I think those are fair. Um, I also think that a year was about the most I'd go with Luno and AJ Hinch, which now that we've received further information, they might have not have been ha- as hands-on as we thought in the whole process. So I think yeah. that's definitely that was definitely a fair suspension. And Sebastian, what's your take on this? See, I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's enough because oh at the goodness. end of the day, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. Banner still hangs. Yeah. Um, those guys will get jobs um, sooner or later. Probably. Uh, some team will be desperate enough. These guys are proven winners. And, and I do that in air quotes because I don't know. Yeah, I was about to say, how much can we really call yeah. them winners if they had to bang on trash cans to get those wins? No, it definitely yeah. makes me question everything that the Astros accomplished. When we looked at this franchise, most of you know the country looked at this franchise as a really great feel-good story that was terrible you know, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And they built this team up with some great pitching. They brought in guys like Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa. They put together a really likable team. And that has all gone down the drain in just a few months. It really started when they traded for Roberto Osuna to to help them win a title. And we all know Roberto Osuna's past. Then going forward, Brandon Taubman, one of their assistant GMs, with his altercation with the media during the uh, postseason this year. And they, they fired him, but they botched that messaging, coming out and saying that the reports that were coming out were just not true when it was being backed up by several members of the media. And now these allegations. And these are some. this is something we've been hearing whispers about for probably over a year now with the Astros doing things like this. But, you know, we, there was like, ah, how are you going to prove it? Well, the way they did prove it is Mike Fires came out on the record, you know, used his own name. And he p- pitched for the Astros with an article on an article in the, in the Athletic and came out and kind of exposed everything the Astros have done. And I think that's really what it took for something like this to happen, for those types of punishments to be levied and – now it's gonna. It's not done yet. Like we don't know what's happening with Red Sox not manager Alex Cora. I've heard the term lifetime ban be thrown around. Uh, that's not a rumor. That's just people speculating. Um, and, and I think well, people speculated lifetime ban for for these two. Yeah, no, and, and I, mm-hmm. but I don't think a lifetime ban is out of the question for Alex Cora. The fact that he was doing this with the Houston Astros, they had been told to stop by Major League Baseball. They had been told to stop by AJ Hinch, the manager, who yeah. still eventually was you know punished the same. And then Alex Cora went and did the same thing or similar things with the Boston Red Sox. Not only was he a coach on, on the Astros' um, World Series winning team, he went to the Red Sox and won the World Series the very next year. Some guys just can't help themselves. No, it's the thing. True. Like He really just wanted to keep doing it because that's the only way he thought he could win games. Because yeah, he really, either he doesn't trust his players enough or he doesn't trust himself enough to win games the fair way. I, th- I think his thought process was that it couldn't hurt to have this this added information, this added... Well, it's going to hurt them now. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought, if he wasn't getting caught. And, well, in the, not only did Major League Baseball set the president, but the owner of the Houston Astros did as well by firing both Lunau and Hinch literally, like, immediately after the news came down. Mm-hmm. Bloom, new general manager in Boston, I, I know him from his time with the Tampa Bay Rays very well. He's kind of put in a position now where he was just hired as their GM a couple months back, and he might have to fire his manager... Like right away, and that's that's a really really tricky situation for him, and it's something that I'm going to be really interested to see how it plays out because today, and, I, and I've, I've seen I've heard a couple of people talking about this. Logan Morrison, former Major mm-hmm. League ball player, comes out and had some really strong accusations uh, about the the New York Yankees. Let's talk about that for a little bit, Luke. Yeah, so he he posted on Instagram earlier today, sort of this tell all 
a situation where he described a scenario where he back when he was with the Seattle Mariners, I think, um, he w- he was saying that the Astros and this history of cheating goes back to even then when they would use um, some sort of loud noises to get the attention of the batters to tip off pitches. Um, and he said that it cost, he alleges that it cost the Mariners a playoff spot when Felix Hernandez, who should have won the Cy Young that year, um, couldn't even make it past the fifth inning. He was getting shelled so hard. But it was only in Houston that he was getting shelled. I, some, or some, wasn't it only in Houston that he was kind of saying that it was getting shelled in? Yeah. I, I mean, so Logan it's kind Morrison, of something along those lines. Everything that you look at the playoff numbers for, for the Strohs at home during those runs. and even, even Well, here. it didn't even really help this past year. I mean, they kind of got hot towards the end of the uh, in the later halves of games at home. But, like, that, was it the Nationals were able to dominate them pretty well, well in the games. You go back to ALDS Game 5 against Tyler Glasnow. Well, yeah, that too. Were, and, and there were you know rumors that Tyler Glasnow was tipping his pitches, but they were able to catch up on him tipping his pitches very easily, that they were hitting everything he threw in that first inning. They put up five runs, I believe. So this is, yeah, again, a really interesting situation. But going back to the decision to fire both Lunau and Hinch, Gary, do you think in terms of if, the, if you're the Houston Astros, if you own the Houston Astros, You've had a lot of success over the last few years, including a World Series title. Was that the right move to fire those guys and, and start over? No, it was not the right move. Hinch was trying to stop them, and I know he didn't do enough because obviously they kept going along with it. But he tried. He there was reports saying that he smashed two monitors that they used to help get these signs. So he was trying to do the right thing, and only a year suspension. It's one year. You can wait out a year. He's a pretty darn good manager from what we've seen so far, but we don't know what he's like with or without cheating. But then Lanau, he's also built this team. And I know he's, I guess, like we were talking about this before, he's kind of complicit in building this team that kind of built this roster but and that built this culture, but he didn't do any of this. Yeah, I was talking to my friends earlier today. We were talking about the outlook of the Houston Astros going forward from this point, and this was before we found out that um, A.J. Hinch and Jeff Luna have been fired. I said, you know, they'll come back in a year. They still have a great core. They still have, They still won the most games in Major League Baseball. But this sort of changes things. I mean, A.J. Hinch's leadership cannot be put into question. He he has been the captain of that team for the past number of years in which they've won more than any other team in Major League Baseball. And Jeff Luna is a progressive-thinking GM who is ahead of the game for sure. So I don't I don't know where they go from here. How how long do you think before these guys land a new job? Uh, after the spe- suspension or before the suspension? Like now. Or, now? Or how, I mean, how long from now? Well, I, mean, I guarantee you yet. there's at least like three executives that are, that are air quotes, sliding into their DMs. Now, I know the suspension runs from today until the end of the World Series this year, but can they, does anyone know if they could be hired and just not start working until... I don't think... You can start talking to people. Yeah, so I mean, okay, let's say, after the, wor- let's say after the World Series. How long in... After the 2020 World Series, are they still jobless? I give them two months, max. Two months. I, I, w- I don't think Hinch is going to get a managerial role right away, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't shock me to see him join a staff in some capacity um, for next season. I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure that's going to happen, but I think with his, you know, with everything he did in Houston, and I, and I don't want to call. Now I, I do want to be really harsh. Like they cheated, they deserve pretty much everything they got. But I don't want to call their success 100% fake. They still had an amazing pitching staff. Obviously, we saw they had the top two um, finishers in the American League Mm -hmm. Cy Young race this year, Verlander and Cole. And they had a lot of success still. And also with cheating in baseball, especially the way that with uh, telling pitches and giving out signs like this, it only helps so much because you still have to swing the bat and hit the ball. You still have to hit a round object with another yeah. cylindrical oh, object. Well, sure. So it's still not the easiest thing. That's the same thing along the lines of Barry Bonds. Yeah. Like I know Barry Bonds may or may not have cheated, but he still is a pretty darn good hitter. He's still got some pretty darn good hand. I, I know that's the that. argument. The hardest part about hitting a baseball would be knowing where to place the bat so it hits the yeah, ball, well, right? I'd, I'd also argue it's And if you timing. have a way better idea of when to do that, no, it's an added. No, it's a little added. It's a, yeah, it's a little added bonus to know what's coming. So, but still, you don't know where it's going to be. But yeah, it's yes, hitting a baseball is still the hard part. But if you're doing something that no one else can, in, yeah. in both leagues are doing well, a lot, you know, we think the Red no, Sox it, might have been. You have a distinct advantage, and that's exactly why there's it's also cheating, the so mental edge where it's like I'm getting shelled. It's I don't know what's going on because there are mm-hmm. things that work in other games that aren't working right now. Yeah. The, the the mental breakdown of a pitcher will only um, 
add to the problem that is uh, and telling. The, and the confidence on the pit, on the hitting end goes up because they know, oh, I know it's going to be a fastball right down the middle here. I got this one. You know, I think I, I, I think back to what I watched both this Astros team and this uh, the Red Sox team in 2018. I watched these teams and I'm like, they're incredible hitting teams. They hit everything that's coming, literally everything that was being thrown at them, and that really uh, you know it, it explains explains a lot in my opinion. And just going back really quickly to Crane's decision to to fire both Lanau and Hinch, it's not just about the cheating. It goes back to the culture that was specifically referenced in Rob Manfred's report. Going back to when they traded for Roberto Osuna, going back to how they handled the Brandon Taubin situation, and now this. Rob Manfred specifically said they valued winning at all costs over other considerations. Now, obviously, yeah, winning is the ultimate goal, and most really successful teams will do whatever it takes to achieve it but if, if if you look at what the Astros have been built on a lot of it is and I know we're I know one of us wants to use this word later in the show it feels fraudulent now for multiple reasons not just the cheating just looking back at how this organization was run for these last few years and it's something that I don't know I, I'm a little embarrassed to be you know a big baseball fan and to have have had so much respect and admiration for that Astros team and, and, and liked all their players. And again, I don't know which players were involved directly. No one was named in the report. I'm pretty sure we're going to hear names as time goes on. And I was saying today when I first heard this news, I wish I could fast forward to 10, 20, 30 years from now and see how this is viewed. Will it be viewed mm-hmm. at the same, you know, the same as the Black Sox or the same as the Pete Rose or some of these other, or the steroid era? Yeah. Will it be viewed in, in the same way? Will it view, be viewed worse? Because I think right now, we, we were all waiting for the suspensions to come. We all knew they were going to have to be harsh if they wanted to, you know, incentivize teams from not doing this. And now that we yeah, we have the results, See, at least some of them. That's one of my problems, though, with with the punishments is that there are, the the end result stayed the same. They won the World Series. There's no asterisk. They, they, their title hasn't been stripped. I'm not saying that you have to strip their title, but, like, that at the very least, deserves a huge asterisk. I think that's a fair point. Mm-hmm. But I also think that titles are only as valuable as the public perceives them. Now, Astros fans are probably not going to pay it. Well, they're, they're going to notice it, but they're still going to feel the same way they felt in 2017 when their team won that World Series. But the rest of the country and the rest of baseball fans around the world, when they hear 2017 Houston Astros World Series champions, they're going to have that mental asterisk in their head. So I, th- I think that's really important. How me. angry do we think that Dodgers fans are, especially losing to two back-to-back to both the Astros and then later on to the Red Sox, I think both they're teams just who numb. may or may, may have cheated? I think they're just numb at this point. They've been broken so many times by the by the Dodgers late in the ser- uh, late in series, um, or excuse me, late in the playoffs um, over the past, what, four or five years now, that it's they're, they're just numb and... I don't think yeah. they. Uh, from what we've seen w- from our uh, former co-host Chris Camacho, he's he's not so much angry so much as he is like, well, that kind of explains well, it. And especially to get hit with that one-two punch of the Astros in 2017 and then the Red Sox in 2018, mm-hmm. it's it's got to be disheartening for for Dodger fans. And I know uh, a couple prominent ones, including uh, Mario Lopez, he's already gone on a <laughs> on a, a curse world filled curse word filled tirade against the Astros. So I, I think there's still a lot of animosity that's just been reignited today with the news coming out about the Astros. I'm going to say, at least for the Dodgers fans, at least they know it's it wasn't the actual way that their team played as much as it was well, the way the other teams performed off the field. Go back and change no, that. exactly. That's the thing, yeah. You can't give them the World Series because what happens if they played it clean? Yeah, they may have still won. But, you know, which is probably the pain that Dodgers fans are feeling because there's no way to go back and change that. You could play it in the show. <laughs> which is what yeah. <laughs> which is what makes this so feel so much dirtier and so much worse because they're not going to rescind their titles. Their titles will still be there. Like Sebastian said, those flags will fly forever yeah. and there's nothing that any fan of baseball or any fan of the Dodgers can do about that, which again, it just gives that really dirty feeling which I think justifies all the punishments the Astros and, and eventually the Red Sox are probably going to receive and more. You want to know the worst part about this? They might just win another one this year. I like. Uh, I, I, I still think they're they're protected to win the AL West. I still yeah. think they're they're one of the title contenders this season. So it's going to be a big well, trip on their I shoulder say, too. I and, say, yeah, that's what I was about to say. What if they go on a revenge tour now that all the cards are uh, stacked against them? Yeah. The road to the series is a long one, where we at least have to go through 162 games plus 16. Yeah, really quickly, mm-hmm. I do I do think the Astros more than any team this offseason. I know they were really talented last year got lost the most talent out of anyone, especially with losing Garrett Cole. 
But that's enough on the Houston Astros. There was NFL playoffs this week in the divisional round. We had four <laughs> games, two on Saturday and two on Sunday. There's a lot to talk about. We we're down to the uh, last four teams in the NFL season. Real quickly, 49ers handily beat the Minnesota Vikings 27-10. to To me, the 49ers just seemed like a complete team. They just handily beat the Vikings on Saturday. Uh, do you guys have any quick thoughts on this game? There's not a whole lot Kirk, to discuss. Kirk Cousins just keeps playing like Kirk Cousins. I mean, granted, I mean, the Vikings didn't do anything, or the rest of the team didn't do anything for him to help win that game, but Kirk Cousins is not the one guy who's going to go out there and win you ball games. He needs his uh, supporting cast. He needs Dalvin Cook to be there, and Dalvin Cook just wasn't. Dalvin Cook was at 18 yards that game. So yeah, he, yeah, he might he, still be dealing with an injury. We're not 100% yeah, sure so, how I mean, healthy he is. It doesn't help either way. So still, it's not going to be a good day for the Vikings or any team when you don't have your running back, your uh, all-pro running back, I'd say, not playing there, playing well. And then a uh, a higher brand, uh, was it, shoot, I can't remember his name right now, Case Keenum okay, uh, yeah. in the backfield. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think anyone benefited more from that bye week than the 49ers. Mm-hmm. Getting that defensive front healthy in order to yeah, stop Dalvin 100%. Cook, it was insurmountable. So any anybody going forward that says that that bye week isn't valuable to an NFL team, they're lying. Yeah, they brought Quan Alexander back for that game as well. I don't I don't believe the, the rust argument. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Oh, yeah. Because uh, uh, the next game in the weekend, the Saturday night game, Titans 28, Ravens 12, the biggest shocker of the weekend. Sebastian? Today's word of the day is fraudulent. Oh, no, come no, on, no, man. No, no. All right. Lamar Jackson All right. is fraudulent. Elaborate, please. Elaborate, yeah, keep going. Come well, on. Okay, I can't, you don't I can't win pin, that many games and you're pin, fraud. I can't pin everything on Lamar Jackson. Nor I, I, do have to, I do have to give uh, major props to the Titans because they nullified every single element of Lamar's game. They scared him to throw deep passes so much that toward, uh, in the second half of the game, he was just throwing these, like, they, uh, on the broadcast, they called them darts. Yeah. They would just throw for, like, 8 yards, 6 yards, 10 yards at the most, and he would he could only run, or and, but he, he never went for long balls. Yeah, at all. This That's, was a, a major stinger for for Ravens fans. They really got off to a slow start in offense and never picked it up. I, I saw reports on Twitter that they were having trouble with their their headsets, their communication systems, in their home stadium. Now sometimes you see this maybe in like Gillette Stadium, the opposing team. Well, all you got to remember who's on the opposite sideline. Yeah, you got a, a Mike, one Mike Vrabel, a former Patriot. Their <laughs> home stadium, they're having these issues, and it just wasn't a great start. They really couldn't get off the ground. Lamar Jackson. Didn't look like his regular season self, but I'm not one to say that off of, based off of one playoff game against a really good Titans team that's been extremely hot since Ryan Tannehill took over as starting quarterback. I'm not one to call him a fraud for that. What, I'm not one to what, call the what happened last year? frauds. Yeah, what happened say, last year? So, th- yeah, what Sebastian was saying, this is two years in a row that we've seen this kind of performance from Lamar. Um, so he's got he's got something to prove going forward. At my household, it was like a funeral. The death of of the king of analytics himself, John Harbaugh. It was yeah. sad to see. I had so much confidence in this Ravens team going into the postseason, and to see it all stopped by one tractor Cito, yeah, Derrick Henry. Man, is he impossible to stop. He, he was He's incredible. the biggest dude out on that field. It, it was crazy, the things he was doing. Man, he this was, an this game amazing. This game just proves that the NFL will always keep working the same way as it always does, where you can keep running certain kinds of offenses and certain kind of plays throughout the regular season all you want, and you'll keep winning games. But once you get to the playoffs... Certain things work, and the teams will know how to prepare, and they'll end up stopping you. And it wor- happens just about every other year. It's insane. Luke? Yeah, I will say that this game was a lot closer than the 28-12 to final, in my opinion. I think there were a couple plays that it boils down to, a couple fourth, fourth and one uh, conversions that the Ravens didn't capitalize on, and then it just swings the opposite way towards the Titans. So sometimes playoff games just come down to that. Ravens couldn't capitalize. Well, the Raven, Ravens also had, I think it was six or seven drives that finished inside Tennessee territory, I believe inside the 37 or something like that. they came away with 12 points. Right? It's insane. Yeah. That's just credit to the Titans' defense that they were able to hold up and hold strong for that long. Because they really... I mean, Lamar Jackson throws for over, was it 300 yards, 365 yards, and he, they only scored 12 points? Yeah. You would have, if I told you that, you wouldn't have believed me. No, huge pops, props to Mike Vrabel. I thought he, you know, for the first two weeks of the playoffs, he has coached really good football, and he's got his team in the AFC Championship game next weekend against the Kansas City Chiefs, who won their game 51 to 31 they were down 24 nothing one last thing one before or, sorry but go one ahead. last no, thing before we we move on from the titans i have something special planned for if i'm not trying to jinx them so i'm saying knock on wood ladies and gentlemen if 
if Ryan Tannehill makes his way back to South Florida for the Super Bowl, I have a I have a surprise for well, my man we'll Gary. Ha- we'll you have, have a surprise have for me? Yeah. I'll give you a hint. It's The Rock. We'll have to have Ooh. you back on air. I, for, for that surprise, if that were to happen, I'm excited. I, I'm already really excited because I've been loving what Ryan Tannehill's doing in Tennessee. He's been playing. He's been playing very well just for fun them. Fun to watch too. It's yeah. so much fun. I mean, especially with him combined with Derrick Henry, it's just amazing to see them two work together. Ryan Tannehill, though, three touchdowns. He had the most rushing touchdowns of the night for the Titans. Hmm. And, and I want to move on to the the Chiefs Texans game, which at one point was led by the Houston Texans by 24 points, 24 to nothing. Luke. At that point in the game, what what were your thoughts and how that game was going to end up? I still think the Chiefs had a, that had a shot in the game, even though it was twenty four nothing. Because if you looked at how the Texans had gotten their points, I mean, they go on an opening drive. Props to them for that. But then the next couple of drives, the Chiefs were just beating themselves up. Yeah. You had one mm-hmm. fumble by Tyreek Hill that set up a first single for the Texans, another blocked punt for a touchdown for the Texans. So it really was kind of fraudulent the way that they were gathering these points up. And I think once Mahomes actually could put it one drive together, it was just going to avalanche from there. Once it got to 24-7, I tweeted out, we all get to watch Bill O'Brien choke this away together. Nailed you it. got it right, yeah. I mean, 24-7, you could and already see that the tides start to change. And you, so I don't want to give myself too much. And you knew that wasn't going to last either because the tight the Chiefs receivers just weren't catching passes for the first two yeah. drives. I think it was a five drop passes or so. We all knew that wasn't gonna last for long. No. It was they were gonna start Travis Kelsey was not gonna drop every single ball that was targeted in his way. What's so incredible about this game though is the fact that they were down twenty four to zero and still scored 51 points. Now, we've seen some comebacks where they might have won 27-24 or 30-27, to something like that. They scored 51 points, and it shows how electric this Chiefs offense is when they're healthy, when they're uh, firing on all cylinders. It makes them a really dangerous team moving forward. It was a sheer display of momentum. And I know that's it was looked like the momentum that you see in a game of two, NBA 2K on your Xbox, Yeah, but it really was something else to see. No, Luke? for sure. Yeah, I, I, tr- I truly think that Patriots game last year for Patrick Mahomes changed something inside of him. And you could see it on the sideline, or, or even on the field. He was fired up every single first down, every single touchdown they scored. That dude is on a mission to prove something to people that had written him off after last year's uh, AFC Championship game, for sure. Yeah, and I know I blamed Bill O'Brien um, on Twitter and, and a little bit on the show here. I do think that he was partly to blame, but, I mean, you, blowing a 24-point lead can't be all on the head coach. The, the players do have to really step up and figure out a way to just stop the Chiefs and figure out a way to score more points. But it's not just about that. They all, yeah, they also were held to just seven points for the rest yeah, of the exactly. game. You have to put some of the blame on Deshaun Watson in that offense for sure. And, and real quick, before, before we go to break here, I want to talk about the last game, which I think in terms of competitiveness was the best game of the weekend. It was that the was, closest for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The Packers... Uh, Packers 28, Seahawks 23. The Packers going back to the NFC title game for the first time in probably four or five years. Uh, Aaron Rodgers going for another Super Bowl. He's only ever won one of those. Um, but, yeah, this was a competitive game between uh, Pete Carroll, who's one of the best head coaches in the National Football League, and Matt LaFleur, who is a rookie head coach. So really, really cool to see these two talented teams you know, kind of go back and forth. I know the Packers were up big early, but I still felt like in that earlier game, this game was close. This game could go either way. We've seen the Packers blow big leads against the Seahawks in the playoffs before, um, so it was really fun. You know, I grew up a, a massive Aaron Rodgers fan. For, for those of you that don't know, I have a massive uh, <laughs> picture of Aaron Rodgers hung up in my childhood bedroom. I'm sorry for you. So, are you and Are you and Brooks going to talk about this later? Oh, for <laughs> sure, for sure. I'm a Bucks fan now, but I, I still root for the Pack, and, and it was fun to watch them. But I do want to mention: look at look at the players that were in this game: Russell Wilson, Marshawn Lynch, Jimmy Graham. And Aaron Rodgers. It felt like this was a game straight out of 2012. Mm-hmm. Some of the guys that we, we all watched play growing up. It, it, it was fun to see them in action. Even a little though, throwback. Yeah, Speaking of sure. throwbacks, too, Jimmy Johnson at halftime getting announced to the Hall oh of Fame. My, yeah. that, that was, was probably nice. the best moment of the night with Jimmy Johnson getting elected into the Hall of Fame. And then Troy Aikman. The shot Troy up. Aikman. Oh, mm-hmm. Crying we, we watching his CBS former CBS and Fox. Yeah, Bill, Bill Cowher. Bill Cowher on mm-hmm. CBS the day before. Just really well Jimmy done Johnson throughout the entire postseason. Yeah. But yeah. one thing that I wanted to touch on before we go to break, the... One Super Bowl matchup that's still a possibility. Matt LaFleur against his former team, the Tennessee Titans. Yeah. That, that's that's, that's I, still a I shot that we're talking about no, this. The Tennessee Titans a have a shot to get any, to the Super Bowl. Do you guys have any predictions for the next week's Yeah, who do you guys game? think we're going to see real quick? Uh, yeah, I got the, I got the Super Bowl. Niners, Titans. I'm riding with my boy Ryan. Chiefs 49ers. Uh, I'm going Chiefs 49ers just so I don't I'll, jinx the Titans. I'll take I'll take uh, the Packers and the Chiefs. All right, we're going wow. to break down... Everything you need to know about tonight's national championship game right after this short break. 
We've got Austin Reynolds with the Seminoles segment. You are listening to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. Now sending it over to Austin Reynolds with tonight's Seminoles segment. Thanks, guys. This is Austin Reynolds here with tonight's Seminole segment. Florida State's women's basketball team got back to its winning ways Sunday afternoon with a 78-64 win over North Carolina. Nausea Wolfolk and Nikki Ekomu dropped 21 and 20 points, respectively, and the team as a whole shot nearly 57% from the floor to UNC's 38%. That poor shooting mark was what ultimately doomed the Tar Heels, as they only led for four and a half minutes of game time compared to nearly half an hour for the Knolls. For head coach Sue Semrau, this was also her 200th ACC victory as head coach of the Seminoles. Next up for the women is a road matchup against North Carolina State, with tip-off scheduled for 6 p.m. Thursday night. Sticking with basketball, the men's team picked up its fourth conference win this past Wednesday, taking down Wake Forest 78-68. A seven-point halftime lead was quickly erased as Wake Forest went on an 11-0 run to start the second half, but Florida State was able to stabilize and pull away late to secure the win. Devin Vassell led the way with 17 points on 4-8 of eight shooting for the Knolls, followed closely by MJ Walker and Trent Forrest with 15-14. and 14. With this win, the men are now ranked ninth in the country and have won 14-15 of 15 games after dropping the season opener to Pitt. The team returns home Wednesday night as they take on the defending national champions and 18th-ranked Virginia. Tip-off is scheduled for 7 p.m. at the Tucker Civic Center. That's all for me. Now back to the studio for the last half hour. All right. Thank you for that, Austin. And we are going to piggyback off of you there and talk a little bit about men's basketball before we get into the national championship game. We uh, Men's basketball takes on Virginia. The Virginia Cavaliers at home. We saw the new AP poll released today. They went from 10 to 9. They are 4-1 and one in conference play, an amazing start that's really kept them in the mix for that ACC regular season title. Gary, how impressed have you been with, with Leonard Hamilton's squad thus far in ACC play? Very, because it's not it's typically not the same way that we've seen them going about. I know we talked about this last week. They've just been playing in a different fashion. They haven't been relying on the whole bench as they usually do. It's kind of just been one or two guys every night that will pop off, off the bench and have like put up about 10 points or so. So yeah. they've been playing solid ball, though. Luke, any thoughts on uh, the team so far this year? They, they have exceeded my expectations f- so far through the season. I know we had Trent Forrest returning to the team this year, uh, leading that team, and MJ Walker coming back as well. But I really didn't expect this team to take the step, the leap that they have yeah. this early in the season. I, I thought for sure they'd struggle for the first half of the season on offense, trying to find their identity, but they've absolutely uh, soared past the expectations I set earlier in the season. Yeah, it's so important. We, we all saw them lose that season opener at Pitt, and, and what a tough game that was to lose, but they've really done a good job to bounce back from that, winning their next four conference games, and now we're in the real conference schedule where we're seeing games every single week in the league, and they're really in the mix. You know, you look at some of the programs that have taken a step back, UNC, Virginia has taken a step back UNC's this year. Take, yeah. UNC's taken a massive, massive step back. You, I don't know what the heck's going on yeah, down and, there. And Louisville, <laughs> I thought, was going to be up there too, and, and they still might be, but Florida State went to Louisville. And handled and them. They handled them. Put the beat down on them, and, and that makes me really excited about this game on Wednesday because Virginia and Florida State, in certain ways, play a similar game of basketball. They're going to try to suffocate you on defense. They're going to try to force turnovers. It's probably going to be a very low-scoring, ugly game. Virginia is ranked 43rd in the Ken Palm rankings, uh, which is something that both the committee and the bookmakers in Vegas like to use when they're setting lines and you know really deciding uh, how teams win the are game, rated. Yeah. yeah, 
But Virginia is ranked second in adjusted defense, which is incredible. Out of all 353 teams in Division I basketball, Florida State is ranked, I believe, 19th in adjusted defense. So this is going to be two really good defensive teams. And looking forward as to what it's going to take for Florida State to win that game on Wednesday night, to move to 5-1, and one, to keep their, their home winning streak alive, they're going to have to not rely on the guys like Trent Forrest, Devin Vassell, and MJ Walker, which they've proven they're able to do. And I believe Gary mentioned it, they've got to use their bench. We need quality minutes out of guys like Raekwon Evans, out of players like Anthony Polite, who has played really good defense recently, uh, and, and all those guys that maybe don't get a whole lot of minutes, but when they come off the bench, they've got to be quality because Virginia, if you if you you know try to run your game through one or two players, they'll easily be able to shut them down and, and keep you. You know they're only, they're only allowing forty eight point seven points per game. But uh, Sebastian, any thoughts on on the game on Wednesday night? That'll be a must-watch. Yeah, definitely, for sure. The student tickets sold out, like, instantly. It was five hours or so, I believe, that it, it took for less. it to get out. So, yeah, this, this this absolutely reminds me of last year around this time mm-hmm. when we thought FSU was gaining momentum and they were about to announce their presence in that ACC conference against Duke, right? Now, this might not be as much of a high-profile matchup as last year's Zion-led Duke team, but it's absolutely uh, yeah. just as important of a regular season game for FSU to win. And I, I think you're absolutely right. If you try to rely on just Trent Forrest and Vassell to score the ball, they're going to eat you eat you up. Um, so I, I think it's important for FSU to make their shots early, assert their presence um, from three-point range, and then kind of just out outplay Virginia from there. Yeah, no, I, I think they're, yeah, like I said, they're going to need to get good minutes from everyone in the rotation, and, and they've got to continue to keep forcing turnovers, which I know Tony Bennett and that Virginia team they're they're gonna they're gonna focus on that. They're gonna game plan for that. We know how much success they've had. They're the defending national champions. But looking ahead, you know, UNC, we all kind of looked ahead to that game and said, well, that's the marquee game on the schedule. Now it's kind of not. Now that's taking a step back. This game on Wednesday night has produced a lot, a lot of hype. Um, but yeah, just they've got to they've got to watch Mamadi Diakite, but they've also lost um, uh, you know some of their other players, Akiki and uh, Kyle Guy. But it looks like uh, we've got a we've got a caller coming in right now. Talking about uh, uh, Virginia basketball. Yes, is this uh, is Tyler on the line? Yeah. Hey, Brad, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing, man? Uh, good. I was calling because I heard you guys talking about uh, men's basketball. Yep. And I couldn't help think, you know, with the Florida State team looking so good, uh, kind of get your opinions on. Do you think this is the the year Florida State makes that next move? and goes from the Elite Eight and goes to the Final Four and has a chance at the national championship just because of how um, just everybody at the top seems to be falling. I think with how they're built, Tyler, they're definitely capable of going as far as the Final Four and compete for a national title game. But the tournament, as we know, is just so unpredictable. What I am more impressed with is how this team, I think, can compete for an ACC regular season title, which I've been saying for a while would be the greatest thing this this program has ever accomplished, and that's knowing that they've been into a national title game back in the 70s. If you can win an ACC regular season title across a 20-game slate with the programs like Duke, Louisville, Virginia, UNC, and, and way more Syracuse, in that league, if you can win that league in the regular season, that tells me so much more about the quality of your basketball team. And, and Luke's got to add on to that a little bit. Yeah, I just want to add on to their, their national title hopes, if you will, making that next jump to the Final Four, Tyler. Um, these last two years, we've seen probably more well-balanced FSU teams, I'd say, uh, especially last year's team. We've seen them be bounced in the Elite Eight, in the Sweet 16, much less than they were projected to go, I guess, by us. So, really, truly, anything can happen in in the tournament, I would much, much uh, rather set my expectations towards that regular season ACC title. Yeah, well, yeah Tyler. Thank you. I thank you for uh, answering the question. I just have so much uh, expectations for this team because FSU football is so down. So yeah. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you can make we can make that jump. And uh, you know, thank well, you. We're going to move on to some exciting basketball, Tyler. Thank you for the call. But now, less than you know, twenty minutes away. Sense. 20 minutes away, the national championship between number three Clemson and number one LSU is kicking off in New Orleans. It's one of the most anticipated college football games that I can remember, you know, in recent years. It's something that I'm super excited about. We've got Ed Orgeron versus Davo Sweeney, Joe Burrow versus Trevor Lawrence, two really exciting high-energy coaches, and you might have your opinions on both of them, and then two quarterbacks that are shoe-ins for the next two NFL drafts. 
I mean, it, it makes for a perfect game. LSU practically playing a home game in New Orleans, and it's just it's going to be an incredible atmosphere in New Orleans and at the stadium during the game. Sebastian, uh, there for for those of you who don't know, Raisin Cane's is a a chicken place no uh, over in or in uh, Louisiana, and they're actually closing early tonight so that their employees can get home and watch the LSU game. But, um, but apart from that, I just have to say something. Uh, and it pains me to do this, but I have to say something about Clemson. And I think it's that um, the the quality of the ACC does not reflect on the quality of, of Clemson football this year. Uh, Clemson football has been phenomenal. Yes, there were some strange calls that went their way, uh, some would say questionable calls that went their way in the college football playoff semifinal. Um, but people are saying that, oh, Clemson's going to get annihilated by LSU. And I think that's absolutely not the case. LSU, uh, Clemson is still a phenomenal football team. They have yet to drop a game. And then it's very big. Um, if you are just as good in the regular season as you were last year, we all know how that turned out, then there's uh, nothing yet that tells me that they should be, you know, um, destroyed yeah. yeah brett you were talking about uh, the last time we saw this highly anticipated of a game well i'd go back to last year's national championship game undefeated alabama undefeated clemson and clemson absolutely rolled them um but college football is, is a sport of storylines right and so we set up this national championship this unstoppable force in lsu versus this unmovable object in clemson who have not lost a game since 20 2018 when they lost in this same exact dome to Alabama in the semifinal. I cannot wait to watch this. I think both teams are the upper echelon of college football, and Clemson absolutely is the premier program in college football right now. I cannot wait to watch this game. You know, I've been talking about it for really since you know the start of the playoff. I think the country right now, and rightfully so, is starstruck with LSU. How do you not love Coach O? How do you not love Joe Burrow? How do you not love the fact that they went into Tuscaloosa beat the Crimson Tide, got that monkey off their back, and now they're headed to the national championship in what is practically a home game. Those hype videos, though. In, their, in the hype videos. <laughs> I, we are going to talk if, about if that. If you say one thing about those two words that I absolutely do not like, Gary, we're going to have problems. We are, we are going to talk about the hype Don't videos. Don't do it. Oh, I, no, do I was it. just going to call LSU Don't do the it. lovable winners. Oh. Well, the Cubs yeah. are the Cubs are the lovable losers. These guys are the lovable winners. They... So I was Every gonna time say swag surfing, I was really scared there. I'll get to the swag no, surfing. No, 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 just wait, just wait, just wait. But these guys, they keep winning, and it's an SEC team. It's an SEC West team, and the nation we're trained to not and like these teams, and we're trained to like say, no, the SEC is the ba- oh, they're the bad guys typically, but they just win us over every dang time. Yeah, and, and, and I know there's the the difference. There's a lot of talk that if the S- if LSU wins tonight, that it just proves how poor the ACC is. These are two great football teams. We've seen what both of them are capable of. In fact, Clemson beat two SEC teams this year and then went in the college football playoff semifinal and beat Ohio State. Clemson is a great team. They haven't lost in how long. And even if they lose tonight, it's because LSU is just slightly greater on the night. I don't think you can really draw too much of judgment from this game specifically. But with that being said, is there is there a team that this game might mean more for? Yeah, I think it absolutely means more for LSU just to cap off what has been a magical run through this entire college football season. Um, going back to last year, Joe Burrow was the fraction, not the fraction of a quarterback he is now. And to see his progression, to see his rise to start in this season, um, as well as everyone around him, these wide receivers have uh, kind of risen up from obscurity to become these Bolitnikoff winners. Um, I think it's yeah. absolutely LSU's to lose, for sure. Especially being played in New Orleans. All the pressure's on them right this, now. This seems like a team of destiny of sorts. The fact that Joe Burrow's gone next year, there are reports that the passing game coordinator, Joe Brady, who's kind of been the... He's being courted right now. Mastermind. Ma- the mastermind. mastermind is could be on his way to the NFL or maybe a potentially a bigger college football job, but I don't think really many of those are left any, mm-hmm. at this point. So this is kind of it for LSU. Clemson, we know what they've built. They're probably going to be back in the playoff next year. Yes. They're going to have that Especially number 16. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. going to have the third year of Trevor Lawrence, and we've seen how incredible he is now. He still doesn't want a Heisman. Next year, I mean, he's going to be the odds-on favorite, I'm pretty sure, once we get uh, after the, after this season's over. it's it's. But like go back, going back to Clemson, how good they are. They have allowed 11.3 points per game this season. And even how good Trevor Lawrence is, yeah. past seven games, 22 touchdowns. No, no picks. Well, like he has well not over thrown a pick attempts. in seven right. games. Yeah, this is unheard of, and I really do believe that he will throw a pick tonight. It's just regression to the mean. You can't just go along like this for this long and not get, not make a mistake. 
and it's something's going to break. Something's going to break for one of these two teams. We just don't know where and when. Yeah, I think even from an NFL fan's perspective, there's something to watch in this game. You have the number one and number six, respectfully, uh, passers, uh, leaders in passing efficiency with Joe Burrow and Trevor Lawrence this year. These are two future number one picks. There's no question about it anymore for the two of them. Maybe if Trevor Lawrence gets injured, knock on wood, I I hope it doesn't happen, but he is by far the odds-on favorite to go number one in next year's draft. I think just watching those two alone kind of pick apart these two defenses tonight, it is going to be... Uh, Oscar-worthy, if you will. Well, what do you guys think about, this is less about the game, but more of how everything's transpired. For a couple of years now, Dabo Sweeney, known for, for making comments to the media about how unfairly his Clemson team has been treated this year. We saw it a little bit with the South Carolina game, how Georgia beat South Carolina, and he said that it was everyone was trying to figure out how can we keep Georgia in the playoff, and that if Clemson lost to South Carolina, they would be nowhere near the college football playoff. Do you guys think Dabo is doing some politicking? He's just out there talking. Do you think that he means what he says? What are some of your thoughts yeah. on this? Dabo for sure yeah. means what he says with all this. He, but also he can play that kind of like the other car, the other side there, where he can be politicking around and doing what his thing. But it's just frustrating to see him do this because if Clemson did lose one of those games in in route to the college football playoff, they wouldn't be there because their strength of schedule just wasn't there this year, and they just it wasn't good. Yeah, there were probably a couple games on their schedule they might have been able to you know, get away with. If they, I don't know if they would have been able to get away with a single Maybe, loss on this yeah, record. Yeah, it would have been tough. A single loss would well, have killed them. I think they probably would have got in over Oklahoma. Eh. Mm. I don't know. Maybe if they lost to A&M at home, but Look, you know, besides the point. I just find it really suspect that we, we praise Ed Ordron, we praise these other coaches who fire up their teams by hitting themselves in the head and doing all this crazy stuff. But when Dabo Swinney wants to fire up his team via politicking and whatnot, and it works— we criticize him and we whine about it. Well, we we as the media members end up whining about his whining, which is really hypocritical. It's because he's doing what Nick Saban always does. Nick Saban will try and find that angle that maybe like one person said and like post it on every single billboard in the stadium and in the locker room and say that guy. But really, it's all the media is saying we can't do this and that. And but, it's just frustrating to see him kind of do that same thing. Why does it get to us if we know what the end goal is? If we can if we can objectively say, oh. He's just doing this to fire up his team. Why Why do we take it so much to heart and get so up in arms about him doing this? Because a lot of people just can't take winners and how they keep on winning, and everyone wants to see the whoever's on the top, they want to see them lose. You, yeah. Like, same thing with the Warriors. Did, you, did everyone want to see the Warriors keep on winning? No, everyone wanted to see the Warriors lose in a final because it's the, it's the big story. Everyone, yeah, everyone, everyone loves a good villain. Wa- uh, everyone wants to take a shot at the king. The yeah, most popular characters in wrestling are always the heels. Yes. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves so, so to hate. Do we consider Dabo a, a, a one of the major heels of college football? Do you think he's that much disliked across the country? I think not people just, in the South. just think he's annoying. I don't think people think he's evil. Nick Saban is evil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, li- I like that See, perspective. See, I don't, I don't think Nick Saban is evil either. He's a, he's a head football coach at a no, major Nick university. Saban, no, but, Nick Saban is evil. Obviously, <laughs> I think we can all yeah. understand that everything these coaches say, from, from Jim Harbaugh to Dabo Sweeney to Nick Saban to Mike Leach, who we haven't mentioned was just hired at yeah. Mississippi State. Egg bowl, meme bowl. But they all, they all, they all do silly things. They all say silly things to the media. They all know the real deal. They all see. They can see through that themselves. But they say these things to get a rise out of the media, to get a rise out of fan bases across the country. So the, yeah, you know, Nick Saban. I don't think he's evil at heart, but he's viewed by a lot of people as an evil man. Dabo Sweeney is viewed by a lot of people as an annoying man. And now I don't think that's that's probably not who they are as people, but in terms of how they kind of portray themselves as college football coaches, that, that we, we can view them that way and still be able to see and, and know we can see through their BS. Yeah, I, I, just, I just urge media fans, if you're going to pick on something Dabo does, pick on how he handles player salaries and his viewpoints towards that yeah. and how, mm-hmm. how much he is making. I think that's a much easier thing to go after Dabo about than him just complaining that he doesn't get the respect didn't, they deserve. Didn't Dabo say the day players are getting paid the he day he He is going quits? to quit. So when is that? What do we got? How many more years? <laughs> tick, tick, 2021. You know it's going to start happening yeah. Ooh, in California. So, Bye-bye, yeah. Dabo. But again, stuff, stuff like that has been said by, by not just Dabo. He is the target that's because right, of yeah. how good his team is. But, but that whole Dabo narrative and that whole Clemson narrative – really has made LSU, again, the fan favorites. Like, the country, they, like they've become America's team this season because of Joe Burrow, because Coach Ogeron. And I think a lot of people are going into this game with the idea that LSU is just so much better than Clemson. 
and we've said it multiple times. They're like they are a good good team. They may be the best team in the country, but this is going to be a close game. This is going to be a game that both both offenses can can execute at a high level, and 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 this is going to be LSU's the best defense they've played all year. So no one's been able to stop them yet. They even put up forty plus points in Tuscaloosa, but this is a different game, and I know that it's in New Orleans. I know that there's a quote-unquote home field advantage. I still think there's going to be a large enough contingent of Clemson fans in this stadium to make this game competitive. It's not like it's going to be all purple and gold in the seats. They have seats that they're selling to Clemson fans. It's going to be a crazy atmosphere just because it's in that stadium and in that city and all the pomp and circumstance that surrounds the national championship game. But like Clemson is amazingly good and we saw that on display against Ohio State. I think the one thing to look for with Clemson tonight to kind of drown out that LSU hype train that's been going on, their momentum that's been going on, you have to have success running the football tonight with Travis Etienne, which I'm positive that they can have it. Travis Etienne is one of the best running backs in the league and honestly he's kind of underrated when we talk about the the upper echelon of running backs. Um, I think they have have to control the ball tonight. Keep the ball, just keep it away from Joe Burrow. I know they have a superstar quarterback of their own, but you cannot let Joe Burrow have the majority of possessions tonight. Well, you can say Joe, keep the ball out of Joe Burrow's hands, but what if they get the ball into if, get the ball into LSU running back Chris Curry's hand? I really like this guy. He does have some real potential in the backfield for LSU, and if he can somehow find a way to get some good solid carry, some good solid rushes in against this tough Clemson defensive line, it could really be. The uh, it could really be the shot that breaks the camel's yeah, that, back. That's there. not even to mention Clyde Edwards Ealer, who has yeah. been well, him too. If not Joe Burrow, he is the superstar of this season for LSU. So we we could probably agree that out of all the running backs on this team or on both of these teams, ETN is probably the best back. Yes, I agree. Yeah, but he, it's really easy to make the argument that LSU's running backs combined put together a stronger running force than Clemson's because mm-hmm. they have Lair and they have. Uh, What's, what's Chris it? Curry. Curry. I've really liked Curry these past few games. Just the way he explodes out of the backfield is just something that I my jaw drops every time. You know who might be the biggest running threat of them all tonight, though? Trevor Lawrence. And that, is, that is Trevor, Trevor Lawrence. Lawrence. I could see it. If he could somehow muster a couple first downs using his legs, scrambling out to find some avenue to run and convert on a third down, I think that bodes well for Clemson. Just... I, I keep stressing, you have to limit the number of possession LSU gets. Well, don't forget, Joe, uh, Joe Burrow can also run yeah. the ball a little bit every now and then. That's he right. put that game in Alabama on ice when he had that big, yeah. was it, 20-yard run and mm-hmm. late in the game. So, yeah, It's going to be up to Xavier Thomas and Clemson's front line to bring Joe Burrow mm-hmm. down when they get the chance. Yep. Way too many times against Oklahoma, we saw him wrestle himself out of a huge uh, gang tackle by Oklahoma to convert on like a third and 18 or what have you. Um, so I think it's definitely important for Clemson when they get him back in the backfield to convert, to capitalize on that and bring him down. Wasn't that incredible? Going back to that, that last college football playoff game, Clemson and Ohio State, we, we all assumed Trevor Lawrence was a freak athlete. We all assumed that he's probably got some legs on him. That run. But that run, that the run, acceleration. Oh he pulled away he kept, from the defenders. Yeah, That's what he, surprised me with those. He, I he expected, caught that second wind. Exactly. I expected him to just get caught back, like a little like shoelace tackle come in and swipe him down, and he just kept going, and he kept rising in speed. And I, 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 I was, my jaw was but, dropped. But for quarterbacks, even, even the ones that we consider to be fast, mobile, athletic quarterbacks, we don't. We, we usually see them run out of gas at some point, and Trevor Lawrence just didn't. And that's another wrinkle in his game that I'm sure Clemson knew they had, but the rest of the country didn't really see that in him. Now this goes both ways. Now LSU has that kind of threat on tape of Trevor Lawrence running the ball. But at yeah. the same time, Clemson knows LSU has it on tape, and they might just run counter to that. They might hand it to ETN on those kind of reads uh, all game long. So it, it, I'm really excited to see the chess match between Dave Aranda and Jeff Scott, Tony Elliott, that chess match that goes on between them calm plays. Yeah, and it's, it's, it is really interesting. Jeff Scott, his last game with Clemson before he goes down and you know, full-time takes over as the, as the USF head coach. He is coaching the remainder of the college football playoff. How this Clemson offense operates, it's just been it's explosive, but it's also methodical. They are one of the cleanest, most well-oiled machines in the country, probably the most well-oiled machine in the country, if they were to pull it off tonight. Which I say that like it's a long shot. If they were to win tonight, would they be, if they're not already, on the same level as that Alabama dynasty that under Nick Saban? So they would have won three in four years, three national titles in four years, which Nick Saban at Alabama has never done. Mm-hmm. Except Alabama has won more national championships over this 
Alabama dynasty. Um, so I definitely think this would – I already think they've supplanted Alabama as the premier program in college football. Right now. Right now. Yeah. But if you're asking me have they vaulted over Alabama in terms of that dynastic value, uh, whether or not their dynasty is better than Alabama's, I would still say they have to win – as many championships as Alabama. So you'd say they're on a level. similar level, but yeah, they're, they're on the, they're on the sim- a similar uh, trajectory okay. as Alabama. But I don't they're, think they're quite there yet. So th- I, I'd agree with that. Where where Tabo, like I said earlier, Tabo's annoying. He's yeah. not evil like like Saban. Yeah. Um, but he can get there if he keeps winning, and he will keep winning. Yeah. And yeah. everybody in the ACC, I think now, I think you could call it hatred, where you can't stand. It's like, oh, well, great, I got to chalk off that Clemson. That's a loss. This year. I don't hate Clemson, but I also don't blindly support them in playoff games because of conference loyalty. I do yeah. not care. I'm not one of the SEC homers going SEC, SEC. Yeah. No, I think the majority no. of, of ACC fans and FSU fans, I don't think they outright hate Clemson to the level that they might a Miami or whoever their interstate rival is. No, that's Just because they hatred. know that part of the reason why Clemson is at the top right now is because these other teams like Florida State have been down and haven't mm-hmm. capitalized. They're part of the re- they're part of the, the they're a part of the blame that goes when we talk about why Clemson has risen to this ridiculous level that they have. Maybe a national title or two would be respectable, but for them to run undefeated these last two seasons like they have, you definitely have to have some uh Poor, poor efforts by these other ACC teams. See, at the end of the day, though, it's going to take years for any of any of the programs um, around Clemson and the ACC to get to the point where they can they can hang with Clemson year in and year out. Yeah, but somebody's going to have to be the Georgia uh, to Clemson's Alabama for well, a few years. Well, Georgia hasn't beaten Alabama. I would say they have to become LSU to Alabama. Yeah, so what, like that. What, and that happened in that happened in That's what I'm trying year. to get that's what I'm trying to get at. You either run your head against the wall that is Clemson for a couple of years and hope for a breakthrough um, or you um, we we still don't know what's going to happen tonight. Um, or you can make a meteoric rise in one year uh, to push through uh, Bama like this and maybe not do it again. We don't know what's going to happen with Clemson, uh, with LSU down the line if they can sustain this level of success. A lot of talent is leaving this year. A lot of coaching is leaving, the, or a lot of important coaching is leaving, leaving this year. We still don't know with LSU. We don't, we don't know how bright this star burns, if it's yeah. just going to blow up in, in a few years' time. And I know the SEC is going to take a step back, but you know, LSU, it's going to be really tough for them to play at the level they are again next year given what they're losing and what some of these other teams are adding and Clemson on the other hand is going to stay great you look at the, the guys they're bringing in and recruiting is such an important part of having success at this level Florida State did it less than a decade ago we all witnessed that so it's, yeah it's gonna be really incredible I don't want to say that this would be a failed season for LSU if they were to lose but they have a, they have a it's a national championship game both games have a lot of uh, teams on the line one, uh, a lot one, of stuff on the line one but. last thing I'll say about LSU before we get to predictions if they lose this game if you're an LSU fan, you're thinking, you're throwing your arms up and you're saying, what else can we do? We have had a perfect regular season. We can't play better on offense than this, than we, the output we put forward this season. And it still wasn't enough to bring home a championship. And real quick, before we get to predictions, LSU fans, you know, if you lose this game in a close one, in a nail-biter, this was still an amazing season. The Joe, like Joe Burrow is a legend at LSU forever for what he's done. Coach O is probably headed in the same direction. But let's move on real quick before we close out the show. Gary, talk to me a little bit about what's going to happen in tonight's game and give me a score prediction. Well, it's going to come down, I think, for at least for Clemson's defense, it's going to come down to how Isaiah Simmons plays. That man is the X factor, I believe, for Clemson's defense. And if he can stop the LSU passing attack, they're going to be in good shape. So, But I don't really know if that's going to happen, but I'm going to take the LSU Tigers. The Tigers. I'm going to take the LSU Tigers. 34 to 30. 34 30, uh, LSU. Gee, uh, Did I take your number? Yeah. He man. took the number. Shoot. My first show, man. That's not I'm sorry. <laughs> so I look at this a little differently. I think it comes down to Clemson's offense and for them to be more methodical than explosive. I think Travis Etienne <clears throat> is the MVP of this game. I truly do. Um, and I think Clemson gets the job done 38 35. That would be incredible, Sebastian. You know when two teams are at such a high level, um, the the scoring kind of drops off completely because it becomes a chess match where things uh, slow down. Um, I think the same thing is going to happen in this game. I have um, LSU winning it uh, 27-24. And I'll go real quick. I'm going to take the LSU Tigers. I'll have to adjust my score a little bit just so I can be a little different. I'm going to go LSU, <laughs> LSU 31, Clemson 28. 
But uh, that's all we've got tonight. I hope you all enjoy the spectacle that is the college football playoff national championship. Thank you to Austin Reynolds for tonight's seminal segment, Scott Clemens on Twitter, and our producer, Sebastian Angeliano. So for Sebastian Angeliano, Luke Hazen, and Gary Putnick, I'm Brett Rutherford, and this was Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee. The voice of Florida State. New release is up next.